I give you England, this teeming womb of privilege, this feudal state whose shores beat back the turbulent sea of foreign anarchy, this ancient fortress still commanded by the noblest of our royal blood, this ancient land of ritual, this precious stone set in the silver sea. The toast is England, this precious stone set in the silver sea. Listeners, this is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 112 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast that is working its way chronologically through the Criterion Collection. And as we have been for the last few episodes and will be for the next few episodes, we are in May of 1972, uh, kind of talking about a cluster of films that made their premieres at uh, that year's Cannes Film Festival. Of course, the great uh, gathering down there on the Mediterranean coast in France every year, most years anyways. There's been a few significant uh, interruptions in that sequence. But in 1972, uh, films like we've talked about in recent episodes, such as Robert Altman's Images and Maurice Pialat's We Won't Grow Old Together, the focus of our last two episodes. Uh, This film that we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, which is Peter Medak's The Ruling Class, and the next episode, which is John Huston's Fat City, also made their debut at Cannes in that uh, spring of 1972. So uh, some pretty interesting releases coming at us. And uh, this one here in particular is uh, is a real, well, it's, it's special. <laughs> and I'm very eager to uh, once again get into the conversation with it. I've got a couple of fantastic guests. So let's go ahead and introduce them and get the conversation rolling. First, let's start with Richard Doyle. Richard, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's going good. Good Excellent. to be back. Yeah, so it's nice to nice to get back into this. It's been a few weeks since I've recorded anything, so it feels not really like a break, but it's it's been a little bit, so I'm back on the horse again, and good to have you with me as always, Richard. Very much appreciate your steady willingness to jump into just about any genre, any type of film, and talk about it with me. And coming back, uh, it's been a few episodes now, but Alex Cormier, welcome back, Alex. Thanks for having me, David. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a little while. So do you want you want to just kind of catch us up on what you've been up to? I know you've got your own little kind of podcast movie thing going there. Uh, kind of fill us in a little bit of what uh, has been happening in Alex's world lately. Yeah, I've just been. I plug away. That comes out. It's a radio show. It comes out every mm-hmm. week. 
Um, and so that's a steady thing. Uh, recently just got sick, um, as you guys know a little bit behind sure. the scenes there. Yeah. And that wasn't super fun for the, the whole family here. I have two, two uh, young children, so we were all sick for the last week. And we're, everyone was okay, but it just was not super pleasant time. So yeah. I'm happy to be coming out of that. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to say that I... That I, I would like to think that would have been a good time to watch some movies, but it really wasn't even that. So <laughs> sometimes you're yeah. sick to the point it's hard to really focus on, you know, challenging fare anyway. So sure, it drains the energy, and and yeah, you're just you're just thinking about your well being. I'm glad it was no more serious than a, you know, significant inconvenience. And I'm definitely you sound great. Good to have you back, and uh, you know glad that we could kind of reschedule to make this happen uh, so that you didn't have to kind of force yourself through uh, an unpleasant situation just for the sake of a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, me too. All right. Well, let's get into it here. So we are talking, unlike the last couple films, uh, we're talking about an actual Criterion Collection physical media release tonight. Uh, This is spine number 132. Uh, still a DVD only release. It has not been upgraded, even though Criterion's done a lot of upgrading uh, over the subsequent years. This is a 2001 disc, and uh, it is a, uh, I believe it is a Janus Films uh, release. It's a cult classic of sorts, um, directed by Peter Medak, who may not be a real familiar name. He's not a name, a director that I hear talked about, but he has an interesting filmography. And, and Richard, I'm going to go ahead and see if you want to take a shot at introducing him a little bit, because my hunch is that you've probably seen more of his movies than I have, just looking at his uh, at his uh, list there. Yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting fellow who's... Uh whose filmography kind of comes in in interesting bursts because i i saw this film when i was very young like i saw Mm -hmm. this film it was re-released in 1983 and i saw it in theaters then when i was 14 okay so you got a good long acquaintance with that's great Uh yes yeah i'm very fond of this film and um but he also um has a very significant horror film made in 1981, The Changeling with George C. Scott, which is a Canadian horror film, mm-hmm. and is largely considered one of the best ghost stories ever made. Yep. And um, he also has a real burst of activity in the 90s with a bunch of British crime films that are all quite good. Um, mm-hmm. The Craze, which stars the twins from um, the band Spandau Ballet as the famous <laughs> And that's K.R. A Y S, not C R A Z E, right? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, let him have it with a a very early role for uh, Christopher Eccleston as a um, a true story of um, a uh, mentally challenged young man who was hung for complicity in a murder of a policeman. Where there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of questioning that whether they they didn't misinterpret the titular statement. Let him have it. Is, is what is what got him okay. convicted, and, and they think it was his plea for his for his friend to give the policeman their, his gun. Hmm, a little gallows humor, we might say. There's a little connection yeah. here. Yeah, between... and it's actually uh, the Elvis Costello song "Let Him Dangle" is about the same. Oh, case. okay. Wow, that's an interesting bit of trivia there. He's yeah. also done some pretty interesting work in TV. I mean, uh, yeah, lot, episodes yeah. of Breaking Bad. And uh, the wire, 
and uh, what's what else here? Um, Hannibal the series. Uh, his most recent work, looking at his official website, is The Ghost of Peter Sellers, which I have not seen, but I'm very interested in checking out. So he's still doing stuff. Yeah. 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 And The Ghost of Peter Sellers is on the Criterion channel now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've heard good things. Yeah, yeah. I should have made a little work to get into that. This would have been interesting just to sort of see his most recent stuff. Oh, Species 2. I mean, a kind of a follow-up. <laughs> <you go>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it just he's been all over the place and and so again you know these titles are interesting but they're not the kind that kind of get you into that pantheon of of great auteurs you know um but but so much for the director he does make an appearance on the commentary track maybe we'll have more to say about him um but you know uh this film here is really i think probably best known as kind of uh, maybe Peter O'Toole's second greatest role after his, uh, you know, turn and his screen debut in Lawrence of Arabia. Of course, O'Toole's had a pretty distinguished career. He's done a lot of pretty fascinating stuff uh, and is quite a character. Um, But this one here really kind of gives him an opportunity to show his full range. And it is, it is quite a performance. Um, I'm going to get into Richard's kind of acquaintance with this film in a little bit, but Alex, let me just kind of get a little bit of your first response. Uh, what are your thoughts about this film and what interested you in joining me for this conversation? Um, I had not seen it before I put mm-hmm. my, my name on the list, but it sounded interesting to me. I was only familiar with Peter Medak through the changeling, mm-hmm. which I think is a pretty, pretty solid film. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just threw my, my name down there and decided to check it out. And I'll say I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I watched it a couple of times in preparation for the episode. I don't feel like I fully have a grasp on what it's all about. Okay. I think there's, there's definitely some, like, you know, it's a satire and sort of the broad strokes of the satire are fairly... Mm-hmm straightforward and and easy to understand but some of the religious um stuff i think uh, is not as easy for me to pick up on so anyways it i like the film a lot i like its sort of commitment to its um wildly contrasting tones in the first and second half it really it really goes in a two different directions, but I feel like it's fully committed to sort of the more zany, humorous side of things. Um, and then to a much, much darker kind of vision towards the end of the film. Uh, so I like that. I think it's really interesting as a, um, adaptation of a play, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when, when a play, when an ad or like a, an adaptation of play to film doesn't work out. It's because it ends up feeling like it's some halfway between a film and a play. Um, and so this one is really committed to presenting it as sort of, uh, in a very theatrical way. Um, so I think that that works really well for the film. I don't think it makes it any less interesting as a film, but you know, there's many, um, long dialogues and sort of addresses to the audience. And I'm, I'm really glad they didn't try to turn that into something that was more kind of conversational. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that I like about the film and I'm definitely interested to hear uh, 
what you guys think of it because I, I think you'll probably, yeah. um, yeah, uh, just just interested to hear what your thoughts are. I think we've got a pretty good range of perspectives. You know, Richard's got a long term acquaintance to it. I've I've been I've watched this film probably in the early two thousands after it had been released by Criterion on DVD. Um, so you know, you we got a newbie, kind of a mid range, and then somebody who goes kind of further back than that. So, Richard, why don't you kind of give us an overview? This is a this is a like as Alex said, a, an adaptation of a of a stage play that was pretty sensational in England at in its day. It was presented, I think, back in sixty seven, sixty eight when plays like uh, Hare and Old Calcutta kind of this, were introducing this kind of countercultural note into the uh, British theatrical scene, um, adapted for a film. I think Peter O'Toole had the rights to it, uh, and and he was kind of, you know, looking for the right outlet. And Peter Medak, I'm not exactly sure how it fell in, I, even though it, I think it's explained in the commentary. But uh, this was a hot property at the time, and it sort of had a built-in audience ready to respond um, because it was a sort of a known thing. Uh, but go ahead and kind of walk us into it. What is the basic gist of the ruling class? And I'm kind of curious to hear more about your uh, longtime uh, fondness for this movie. Sure, sure. Um, so you want to give a brief plot? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it's it's largely a satire on the British upper class. And it basically is about um, the Earl of Gurney. It starts with him played by Harry Andrews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Accidentally killing himself th- through a sort of autoerotic asphyxiation accident. Yes. It's and... been a long day in Parliament or whatever. <laughs> yeah. For a little tension reduction, he, he hangs himself with a silk noose, but uh, kind of kicks the, the landing pad over. And that was that. <laughs> yes. So he's left, he, he has, a, there's a bit of dialogue in it establishing that most of his sons have passed on either in war or other circumstances. So his surviving son, played by Peter O'Toole, is the heir to everything, essentially. And, and it's a uh, very significant estate. I mean, it's like yes. a completely royal palatial mansion yeah. that they live in with properties and everything else, right? right. Yeah. So the, the problem being that the 14th Earl of Gurney, now Peter O'Toole, is... Uh, in an asylum, and it's because he believes he's Jesus Christ. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and not just, I mean, he he has a whole litany of titles <laughs> that, yeah. that he ascribes to, right? Yeah. I love when asked why he believes he's Jesus Christ, he says, because I found that every time I was praying, I was talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> a great tagline for yeah. sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So his, his family, his uncle in particular, are very upset by this and uh, hatch a plot to get him married so that they can commit him and his son can take over the estate and then his uncle can of course manage the estate for him. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. There's all this palace intrigue. We've got an unsuitable heir. Uh, The now deceased aristocrat has done this grievous offense to his family by you know, basically willing everything to his incompetent son plus 30,000 pounds for the butler. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, everybody else on the outside looking in is outraged because they do not get their hands on the loot. 
and uh, yeah, and so they they go through this process of of uh, kind of trying to manage things behind the scenes. Of course, keeping up all the proper appearances, and uh, it, like Alex said, it takes this dark twist uh, when when he's finally cured of his religious mania, and then the real dark side, the 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 hideous underbelly of the British aristocracy reveals itself in all of its horrific ugliness. <laughs> And there are musical numbers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's all this kind of witty banter. I mean, all kinds of, like, the, the whole subversion of everything aristocratic and proper and respectable. Um, and so, yeah, so what you really do have is this pretty savage satire of British aristocracy with some, you know, class and religion, political dynamics uh, thrown in. And it is, it is, you know, pretty fascinating just to sort of see this, this pretty ruthless takedown, although even in the essay itself, which again was written in 2001, there is a recognition that for some people, this is almost like dated material. Like, who cares about the British aristocracy? It's just kind of this stuffy old institution. Um, you know, while we may, in my opinion, see the British aristocracy as kind of a faded glory. And and even at the time that the making of this film, there was a sense that the British Empire was moving towards sunset. Um, Peter Medak's comments, I thought, were very interesting in that he doesn't have any particular gr- grudge against the British aristocracy. He's really against the whole class power and dominion system itself, whatever society it happens to exist in. And so while there may be some people, like I say, who have that chip on the shoulder against the British royalty and, and all of the hangers-on, uh, this critique and this this um, satirical takedown, I, I do believe, goes well beyond that. And I think it does make this movie speak relevantly to the times that we're even living in, you know, some 50-odd years now uh, since the film debuted. Yeah, I, I think it's worth noting that... Um, um... Peter Medak is, of course, Hungarian, and mm-hmm. he's was in England because he took part in the Hungarian revolt in the late fifties, against um, the Soviet Union. Right? Yeah, where they tried to unseat uh, the Stalinist government and were defeated, and he had to flee the country. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a nice tradition of um, Eastern European expats making really wonderful takedowns of authoritarianism, which is <laughs> yeah. where I really think this is a film is. I mean. The proximate target might be the British aristocracy, but I think it's a pretty brutal takedown of the, the power mindset. I think in particular that O'Toole, you know, one version of crazy is no good, but the other mm-hmm. version of crazy is, is just wonderful with them. And it's clearly the wildly more pernicious version of his craziness that, that, yeah. that they're not just comfortable with. They love him. Oh, oh yeah. He he's a trailblazer. He he is the rightful heir at this point, right? So I, it maybe it's fair to point out uh Richard and Alex, you're both Canadians, right? That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. So so what is your I mean, Canada has a slightly different relationship to the British uh, you know, tradition than he, I do, even though I'm in Michigan, which is you know, uh, to me, I feel very spiritually akin to Canada. I'll just say that. Uh, but but yeah, what what do you guys th- take on on the whole Britishness of of this particular film, Alex? Let me hear from you a little bit. 
Well, in terms of being a Canadian, I know that we have some some ties to Britain still, but I think they're fairly superficial. Um, it's certainly not something that I know a ton about or grew up okay. learning a lot about in school. Um, I do think that um, just in, in terms of sort of the British aristocracy, there seems to be an endless a real fascination with that these days with all of with many series like um the crown and downton abbey and that kind of thing um there's a like i guess yeah there's a real sort of fascination with that in the culture still that i've never totally understood um i i've always been attracted to british culture i wouldn't necessarily call myself like an anglophile or anything but um, it's something that's always had a, a strong pull for me. So that's one of the reasons why I um, was interested to talk about this film and British film in general. Um, but in terms of like the specific ties between Canada and Britain, maybe Richard has um, some more to say there. But I, I, to me, it's always seemed like a fairly superficial connection. You want to pick it up, Richard? It, it's a fading connection for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, like our current connection to um, England is is more or less that the um, governor general of Canada is the queen's representative in the government, and it's a ceremonial post. Right. Right. We're still technically part of the British Empire, but independent. Um. My uh, my own background, as you can probably tell from the name Doyle, that I do have connections to <laughs> British yeah. Isles, although not England. But yeah, yeah. Um, my dad actually is um, like Irish via Australia. So okay, oh, uh, so okay, a little a little detour to south of the equator there before yeah. you landed in Canada. All right. Yeah. Well, so let's just get kind of into the into the story itself. Again, we've already kind of laid out the basics. Um, uh, the fourteenth Earl of Gurney. Uh, he doesn't like to have himself referred to as Jack, at least in that first phase of the film. You know, that's his kind of you know given name. Uh, so he has all of these pseudonyms, but but he's he's basically kind of this slight you know, kind of a hybrid between a hippie. And kind of this transcendental, you know, enlightened being. Uh, he, he's 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 living out sort of the almost like the Franciscan ideal of of Jesus as this apostle of love and mercy and grace and you know equanimity. He, he's very much you know in the spirit of a kind of the long haired Jesus freaks, Jesus people of the of the late sixties. Uh, you know, he's he's dressed in a, a brown robe with a rope around his waist. And and uh, you know preaching this gospel of, of of love and kindness and mercy and and he is he's really like this almost like flower child type of character uh, yeah his, his relaxation he's he's up on a crucifix just kind of resting his mind and and trying to get a break from the the pressures of life and in the eyes of his psychiatrist, uh, the reason he's adopted this identity is that he has this megalomaniacal paranoid schizophrenic streak. 
And since he's already a member of the upper crust of British society, <laughs> the only level that he can aspire to is full-fledged deity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so by taking on this persona, of course, he's you know he seems disqualified from all responsibilities as far as managing the property the finances and even making public appearances and so lady claire and uncle charles uh, are kind of the somewhat machiavellian behind the scenes types but even they are played up with sort of a comical effect um lady claire is is kind of um driven by her libido charles is just all about propriety and money and greed and then they have a son dimsdale who's this kind of twit you know this is kind of you know empty suit you know overly privileged uh you know kind of know nothing but he's got all of the power and privilege that comes with his birthright and, and running so, for yeah. parliament <laughs> yeah oh, and of course yeah yeah uh, the, the path is cleared for him to you know just coast to uh, the most influential type of leadership role uh, so you've yeah you've got you know but you've got these other side characters you've got the psychiatrist who is angling for a a grant to further his own careers we've got alistair sim a great british actor as this kind of fuddy-duddy uh, priest who first presides over the funeral for the late uh, the 13th Earl of Gurney and is just kind of there as an advisor. And, of course, he's also angling for uh, support for his own pet causes and all of that. Uh, the scheme, though, is to get uh, Jack, uh, you know, wedded to a woman who was already the mistress for uh, his, his father, uh he's dead now and so she's available and she is this beautiful young woman who's brought in to kind of uh almost be like a breeding stock of sorts uh there's some very humorous moments of courtship they have this kind of almost like bird-like ritual where they're kind of dancing and <laughs> prancing around on the grounds of the estate and uh, again peter o'toole is just completely cutting loose i mean um uh, it's just quite a thing to, to watch him, um, his physicality, um, his eccentricity is in, in, in full force here. Uh, what did you guys just think about Peter O'Toole as he uh, inhabits first this very absurd character? And, you know, he could have probably milked that performance for the full length of the film. Uh, of course, then he turns on a dime and becomes a very different character. Uh, and again, in my mind at least nails both aspects of both the blissful hippie flower child and the cruel cunning and you know ultimately ultimately merciless and homicidal uh ruthless power broker uh in the second half when he is converted away from his messianic obsessions uh into uh what you might call a more traditional uh, authoritarian style of leadership so peter o'toole that's when i when i mentioned um like the commitment of the film i i i think that that has a lot to do with peter o'toole who's just like a hundred percent he's given a hundred percent to this character who's totally split um sort i don't know if it's quite halfway through the film but it's something like that where, where the change happens um but he is just like the the zany physical kind of comedy that he's doing um in the first half is genuinely hilarious um i think that 
like 1970s comedy does not always make me laugh out loud, but this film definitely did on a number of occasions. Um, I think I think Daniel Tucker, the the um, butler, it, he he yeah. a lot of the laugh out loud <laughs> moments. From oh yeah, he's but, he's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, Peter O'Toole, um, he's doing really great comedic work that I. I haven't seen a ton of Peter O'Toole's performances. I mostly know him from Lawrence of Arabia. So I was pretty amazed to see him do that. And then, um, but I was thinking like when I watched it, this seems like a very gentle kind of satire, you know, in, until the midway point happens. And then it, it he doesn't switch immediately um, into being, you know, his Jack the Ripper persona, but it, it it's it's a little bit more gradual than that, but by the end he's truly mm-hmm. a terrifying um, a terrifying figure, and I think that the the film itself is not uh, there's not a lot of laughs like in the last twenty minutes or so, um, but yeah, Peter O'Toole is doing amazing. Yeah, yeah. If you find those final twenty minutes amusing, uh, there's something going on there. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to get some counseling there. Because it, but 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 because we have been laughing and because it, we have been suffused with all this kind of whimsy and kind of this farcical type of you know carrying on, you know the thwarted ambitions of the aristocrats and the flirtations with this uh, you know curvaceous young woman and her little you know striptease and all of that type of thing. It it, it does. It feels like a frothy light you know kind of monty python-ish type of you know ribbing of the uh, upper crust without really taking too much of a toll on them like yeah we can laugh at their expense but (laughs) at the end they still have the money and the power and all the the goodies in life um by the end though yeah there's been some pretty pretty ruthless criticisms leveled and uh, even a, a degree of contempt and condemnation now does it really change the balance of power not exactly but peter barnes the playwright and the others associated with this have certainly let their thoughts be known about what they think about those people yeah anyway i think as the the two um screams that they that make their way into this film are yeah those are among the most abrasive like moments i can think of in a film it's extremely intense and um I think that the kind of emotion of of those those two screaming moments really conveys a lot. <laughs> yeah. mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Richard, what are some of your thoughts about Peter O'Toole and and how he cuts loose here? The reason I originally saw this film was because of Peter O'Toole. Okay, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, let's uh, hear about that. As a teenager, I had seen um, Richard Rush's The Stuntman in 1980, mm-hmm. and um, then his, his sort of big role in my favorite year that got him, I think, mm-hmm. one of his Academy Award nominations. So this film played theaters in 83. They um, It was slightly edited for its first American release, and they um, restored the six minutes cut from it and released it in theaters, I think partly to capitalize on his the notice he got for my favorite year. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of walked into this, like, it's another Peter O'Toole film I've never seen. Yeah. And it really bowled me over back then. <laughs> like I, I, I clearly just, I had never seen anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what were your impressions? I mean, I, I don't know what kind of 
upbringing you had as far as your introduction to religion or even aristocracy or you know class structures and all of that uh was it just kind of what the 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 wildness of it or you know i mean there there's a lot of interesting visual stuff just in terms of the of the decor of the lifestyle of these people this incredible mansion and all the artifacts as well as again the acting and the and the you know, the, the skewering humor of it all. You know? Yeah. I, I think I've always sort of been someone who was a little bit suspicious of authority. And I think that's what mm-hmm. really appealed to me about it, that it was, um, I don't think on, on first reading, I don't think I really understood the shift to the second part. Well, right. And, and I'm, that always seems to be the standard problem with if people have a problem with the film. One of the things they have a problem with is they don't quite get the change in tone. Yeah. yeah it's yeah it's not a it's not a front start to finish comedy it's not yeah. there just to make amusement and haha and leave them laughing as they go right but i definitely remembered the the, the extremely the, the extremely anti-authoritarian tone of this film as well as how how odd it was with musical numbers and everything popping in. <laughs> <laughs> so You're been, right right this was also one of the first criterion dvds i bought i think it was the second one <laughs> okay and um, partly because I wanted my wife to see it. Right? It's like, I, I remember this film. <laughs> you, yeah. you won't believe it. <laughs> um, I, I think it's finally on this viewing that I, I, I've got come to terms with the, the change and sh- the shift in tone and think it's absolutely appropriate. It's like it's kind of the point. Yeah. Of the and, and really, really quite brilliant because I, as I say, yeah, it's, it goes beyond just, sketch comedy or a lampoon or you know kind of swatting at sacred cows that are actually pretty easy sitting ducks you know yeah it's it's very almost like low risk to to make fun of the ultra wealthy and the privileged and the connected uh on the sense of just you know aren't they aren't they quaint aren't they quirky look at how they're indulged and pampered and and uh all the you know, you know, like the Downton Abbey you know, reference, you know, yeah. all of the shenanigans that go on, but without really ever getting down to what a nasty, you know, horrific bit of business it is that in the real world that we all live in and exist, people like this really are in those positions calling the shots and really inflicting, you know, misery on, on so many people because of the whims and the uh, inability of so many, you know, who would like to, you know, do otherwise, uh, we, we really cannot stop them from enacting these, uh, you know, these these impulses based on the authority that they've been able to accrue uh, based on the deeds of generations past and money and resources and, and all of that other stuff. And I think that's that's the part to me that just kind of makes this film feel still very relevant and very important because when it gets down to it, uh, and, and and we don't we have to get right to the end of the film exactly, but you know when the, uh, Jack is disabused of his ideas that he is the Messiah and through this very pivotal and very interesting sequence he he meets up with the electric messiah the acdc <laughs> god this this kind of dark uh megalomania he's he's kind of in a sense the the counterpoint to uh, you know uh 
JCs or uh, peace and love ethos. Here is a God of, of wrath and punishment and uh, you know, subjugation. He's, he's a truly dominant, uh, fearsome presence uh, who is able to shoot sparks out of his fingertips. And he just has that demeanor, you know, his 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 hair, his face, his expressions are really just kind of like the polar inversion of the of the gentle flower child version of deity that uh, that Peter O'Toole embodies in his original kind of presentation here, and that that has the effect of kind of snapping him out of this spell. Uh, now he comes out of this kind of breakdown that he's had. There's almost kind of a fit or seizure, and now he's uh, accepting the name of Jack, <laughs> and, and and we don't know fully on first viewing what the implications of that are, but but the psychiatrist is like, oh, he's healed now, everything's good, and the ethos that he puts forth about um, you know punishing the weak. Uh, culling the unfit out of society, uh, imposing capital punishment and perhaps even torture or other types of coercive measures for the, uh, you know, kind of the, the discipline of society at large, uh, that's all applauded. And, and he is definitely, uh, he, he is presented and, and is revealed you know, regarded by, by his aristocratic peers as having been fully rehabilitated. <laughs> and it's like, wow. Uh, yeah. Is, isn't that kind of how, how it seems to go? It pulls the movie pulls a wonderful trick on you because you sympathize with Jack and you want mm-hmm. Jack to win and yeah. Jack wins by playing their game better than them and destroying them. And it's absolutely pyrrhic victory. Like it, it kind of lures you into rooting for him and then kind of destroys everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the scene with Tucker is where the, the Butler where he betrays him is mm-hmm. where we stop being on his side completely Uh you know i think he's actually already murdered somebody at that point so maybe that's where i should well he took out claire the the you know yes that's right his aunt right his aunt yeah but to me the the scene with tucker because he tucker is just i he's my favorite character in this story i think he's kind of the the audience (laughs) surrogate sure Um, he's uh he's a bit of sanity even though he's completely soused for the the duration um but the you know when when he is betrayed by by peter o'toole it's like a, a dagger in the heart and from that point i was no longer on board but i think we i think you're right i mean especially um in the first half of the film our sympathies are definitely with him and and you know the family's plotting against him and then, and then yeah he oh yeah things <laughs> to an absurd degree um playing their game yeah, the, the family are scoundrels. I mean, they're they're all you know their motives are completely driven by greed and, and hypocrisy. Again, keeping up appearances, maintaining respectability. I think even like after uh, you know uh, the original Lord Gurney's funeral, doesn't Charles say, "Well, great funeral. It kept up all the right impressions," or something like that. It's just it's just basically like making the commoners think the way that we want them to think. Um, but it, it all kind of boils down to the fact that um, uh, 
Jack is not only a, a ruthless authoritarian, he is literally a killer. And yet when he you know, makes his big speech to parliament and uh, there's that cross-cutting of him speaking to the lords and all of their pomp and finery, but then also kind of showing sort of maybe on a, some kind of a spiritual level uh, these withered and hideous corpses that, that they actually are underneath it all. Um, you know, that's that's basically kind of the, the final slam that they're laying down there. And yet these people continue to sit in those those chairs of privilege and authority. And, uh, you know, however you want to take that or however you want to apply that to, you know, current events or just kind of the, the, the general scheme of things in the world we live in, uh, yeah, it, to me it, it's hard just to sort of brush that aside and say, yeah, all's well that ends well. Uh, because there is there is a lot of this you know darkness and corruption that is driving um, you know the narratives uh, that so many of us to various degrees are you know kind of forced to live under and abide by and so I think this is that's where the satire does have some teeth uh, though it may not necessarily be strong enough to dislodge those power structures or, or break them down entirely. But if they can give us a little bit of critical distance from it all, then I think you know the movie has served its purpose. I think one of the I think one of the great touchstones, like where this this film always feels connected to me, is uh, in the role of the master of lunacy who who, tries, <laughs> who comes yeah. to uh, that Graham Crowden comes in the film. Yeah, there's the, there's a job title for you, Master of Lunacy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he's an actor best known for Lindsay Anderson films, and, and okay. feels somewhat connected to If and um, oh, what's the second one? Oh, Lucky Something Man. Oh, Lucky Man. Yeah, oh, Lucky yeah. Man. Yeah, this, this always feels to me somewhat adjacent to those films in the in the sense of satire and what's being satirized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I really love this cast as well. Uh, I've already talked about Alistair Sim. Uh, Kay Walsh has a very small part. Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lady Claire. Um, she was Vincent Price's Cora wife. Brown. Uh, Cora Brown, right? She's she's fantastic. And really, really, the whole cast is 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 most excellent, and uh, they all approach their parts with with great gusto. And I just really greatly appreciate. Uh, you know, just this, their willingness to sort of put themselves out there. Uh, obviously, they're, they're professionals, they're actors, but I, I feel like they they all recognize they had a pretty, um, you know, pretty special opportunity to, to make a statement uh, in their times. And I think, like I said, this, this play was kind of a uh, kind of a celebrated event, even though I don't know that the film did huge business at the box office. Maybe it was the type of thing that caught on more with theatrical audiences in London and was able to pack the house. But, you know, let's face it, this is a movie that can be challenging to a lot of mainstream audiences because, you know, we've already talked about, they have a hard time figuring out, is this a comedy? Is this a tragedy? What is this exactly? And the fact that there's some pretty challenging material in here when it gets right down to what's being said. It's also very theatrical. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I, I think it's a virtue of it that that it, it embraces like that, just how much it should be like a play. But I think yeah. that puts a lot of people off. And that's what the material called for. You're right. 
Yeah, there, definitely some some longer takes than we're used to seeing in mainstream films, and um, pretty pretty dialogue heavy. So I'm not surprised that it wasn't successful at the box office. But it's also think. pretty long. I mean, two and a half hours is a bit of a commitment when you're not talking about Lawrence of Arabia or you know some other kind of big. You know, magnificent uh, visual epic. I just, I just watched uh, Ryan's daughter uh, over the weekend. Uh, speaking of David Lean and, and his, you know, big time films. Again, mm-hmm. beautiful movie, but it's a different type of story. Uh, when you're asking somebody to sit through a two and a half hour film, um, you know that that is a commitment. I, I, I think this film even had an intermission at one point. So, um, in its theatrical presentation, so I think the American cut did trim it down uh richard you talked about some missing minutes what were what was edited out was it edited just through the content or was there some or due to over length or was there some specific content that they thought might be a little bit more than the crowds could handle i don't know exactly what but i i know this from reading one of the links you gave me roger ebert's review from 83 mm-hmm. he comments oh, that's right yeah yeah most of the six minutes seem to be in the second part like that they cut yeah. quite a bit of the of the jack sequences okay. yeah and i and i think there was there was there were a fair number of critics who didn't seem that he, fond he, of the film yeah he didn't seem fond of it but i but right. i i mean i'd respond i the a lot of the negatives i've seen seem to think that the film lot loses its way after he changes to jack and like the jack the ripper part and i'd say no i mean i think that's the only way it can go right yeah if it had just been nothing but you know um the jc role and peter o'toole prancing and flitting about you know as this deluded character you could have had some laughs but it would have been what's the point you know yeah exactly um I, i i think yeah i think the fact that it did take that darker more serious turn uh even with all of the you know, the silliness and the frivolity of that, of that first half, you know, um, that makes the heavier aspects to me resonate more fully than if the whole movie had been kind of with that sort of sinister undertone. I, I, I really feel like that, that contrast, although it's very jarring and, and maybe, you know, a little bit of a challenge for some audiences to absorb. And, and it could be the fact that even the three of us have, you know, kind of committed ourselves to multiple viewings where finally all the pieces fall into place and you recognize, wow, that really is pretty exceptional. Cause I think my, my first experience was, and cause I, you know, I, I saw, I saw the movie years ago. I, I think I borrowed it from the library, thought it was pretty awesome, but really my, my gravitation was towards that first piece. I mean, you know, I've got my own history with, you know, religion and, and Christianity and all of that. And those are the parts that sort of stuck out most in my memory. And I do remember it got kind of heavy and grim and unpleasant toward the end. But now I, I feel like, yeah, now I really understand the thematic sequence that uh, Peter Barnes, the the uh, playwright, and and, the, and O'Toole as the actor and, and Medak as the director are putting us through. And yeah, and maybe it's just my own kind of maturing and coming of age over the years but now i feel like yeah they're actually doing us quite a service to try to lay it out that plainly that you know for all of the you know the the 
the humor and the absurdity uh there there is a a a more significant message beyond just uh, mere entertainment that that they're trying to get through to us here it's it's interesting to hear you say that because i i found on my first watch it was in the second half where my appreciation for the film was really mm-hmm. kind of solidified as mm-hmm. much as i find the first half um funny and amusing i think if the whole film was like that it would come across as sort of like a slightly outdated um curio of the of the 60s yeah. 70s counterculture sort of it just doesn't i just felt like where's the there's no teeth to this and um mm-hmm. right yeah the teeth definitely come out in the second half so that yeah even on my first watch that was where i i really um start to take the film more seriously yeah making fun of stuffy old high churchy you know notions you know th- that's only going to go so far with with a lot of folks you know i, I get that yeah the bishop is a bit of a fool <laughs> oh yeah ho <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, ho <laughs> in his silly robes and, and all that right so yeah well i think i think we've hopefully given this movie you know pretty good coverage there's a lot there's a lot going on here um there are some good links and resources if you want to check out the show notes I always try to find interesting perspectives and like i say there's not a, a a huge consensus that this is a masterpiece for the ages i think the three of us have all found a lot of value in it i wouldn't mind seeing criterion uh, upgrade yeah. this although you know um I don't know. I don't know if there's a particular reason they're holding back uh, on that. Uh, it seems like I'm, it would I'm assuming we be... may not. There may not be a good source because there hasn't been yeah. any Blu-ray upgrade of this. From yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I think you know maybe Criterion's interest is in pursuing other types of filmmaking than this particular style but uh you know the dvd isn't all that bad and it is available on the criterion channel if you want to give it a look uh the one thing you don't get on the the streaming that you do get on the dvd is a pretty it's a pretty worthwhile commentary it's got input from the director medak uh the screenwriter barnes and of course peter o'toole so if you want to get more of their direct personal insights you will need to get the disc uh, because they did not make that commentary track available on the streaming service for reasons that I can only speculate about. Hmm. But also for Canadian listeners, it's one of those frustrating situations where when you search for it there, you'll you'll find the they'll they'll have an image for it in the collections, and then you click on it, and it's empty. So Ooh, that's very disappointing. It really is. Yeah, I I, I yeah. wish that they could just take it off if it's not on there, but. Yeah, that's um, a tease. <laughs> totally. So yeah, it's not available to watch on. Yeah, just Canada. just like a Grace Shelley's little uh, dance that she does right there <laughs> the, on the wedding night there. So the okay, way, well I think yeah, go ahead. Let me just throw in one little factoid for you. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the actress who plays Grace Shelley. Yeah, is Minak's second wife. No. Right, they they end yeah. up uh, yeah. cultivating a relationship out of it. Are they still together or not? No, I, I gather uh, they divorced in the eighties. And she went on to do other. I mean, isn't she like in kind of horror films or some other type of genre stuff? There, sure. I don't know. Okay, I could be I, off. I'd on also that. note Peter O'Toole took no salary for this film. 
Okay, really? So he, but yeah. he had the rights. Um, yeah. What, what was? Is it just to keep the cost down because he recognized they were out on yeah. a limb here a little bit? Actually, okay. I'll, I'll tell you this really quickly because the story is kind of funny. Um, yeah. Minak said that he knew that Peter O'Toole had this, had the rights, and he knew that, and he knew O'Toole. So he mm-hmm. went out on a pub crawl with O'Toole. <laughs> Who was a notorious, yes. you know, drinker for sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. And he said, right. in fact, going to several pubs that were closed because they would reopen if, Tool, if O'Toole knocked on the door. <laughs> <laughs> the tab made it worth it, huh? <laughs> yeah. So then they ended yeah, up at his yeah. house and, and, and Medak prompted him again about this film. And O'Toole immediately got on the phone to his agent and said, I got this Hungarian guy who wants to direct the ruling class, get this going within 24 hours. And Minak said within 24 hours, he was contacted by United Artists and they were making the film. It's amazing. Yeah. So, but well, O'Toole, O'Toole took no salary to keep the cost down because United Artists was paying him a huge amount of money for Man of La Mancha. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was, oh, and he, yeah. so. And it seems like this is probably a film that could have been made fairly quickly. I mean, the sets are yeah. pretty impressive in that lavish uh, estate, but the the play had already been known. The, the actors rehearsed their parts, and I think they did a fair amount of of rehearsal, uh, like it was a theatrical production, which maybe comes through in the performances. But yeah, I'm really glad they did this. This is a, this is a bit of a relic. I don't know that I could see a film like this being made again nowadays. And if they did, I don't know that it would have the same kind of purity of adaptation, uh, of the original material. So, uh, yeah, like I said at the beginning, this is kind of a special film. May not be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm definitely glad I've watched it. I've definitely enjoyed this conversation with you guys. I concur. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. And uh, the same cast will be back in episode 113, in which we talk about John Houston's Fat City. So let's go ahead and wrap up this recording for now, and we'll be at you real soon. So thanks for listening, everybody. Pax et benedictus and doctorius nostrum in dominus verbiscum. Arise, shine, for my light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Here is the brag, see how it goes, down on your heels, up on your toes, that's the way to do the varsity drag. This is Pickett Jones and Mrs. Treadwell. You can pass many a class, whether you're dumb or wise. If you all answer the call when your professor cries, everybody down, down on, on the heels, up on the toes, stay after school, learn how it goes. Everybody do the varsity, everybody do the varsity.